Right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, that's where we will be this morning. Romans 8, while you're turning there, I'm going to show you more pictures of my kids because I know of no better way to endear myself to you than to show you two cutest kids in the world. That's uh, not just my personal opinion, that is factual information. This is Luke and Gracie. They are incredibly cute, immeasurably cute. They're also incredibly active these days. They're two and a half, and as I think you can see in the pictures, they run everywhere. They climb everything. They jump all the time, incredibly active. They wear me out every day. Uh, But because of all that activity, they are now really prone to injury. Uh, We have a lot of falls in my household, a lot of skinned knees and and banged heads because they take so many risks these days. I'm, I'm really glad that God designed their bodies to be kind of kind of bouncy and resilient. If, if I took half the falls that my son did just this week, you would be looking for a new pastor. I would be dead. Um, my kids are, are falling all the time. And when that happens, when they fall, when they scrape a knee, when they get a finger caught in the door, when they get scared about something or afraid, there is always one word that comes out of my children's mouths when they are hurt. What is that one word? Mommy. Never daddy. Daddy. Never daddy. Uh, I'm fun when you want to play or when you want something to climb, then daddy will do. But as soon as you're hurt, then daddy's no longer sufficient. Now they need mommy. They call out, they cry out for mommy in their minds. The solution to their every problem is mommy. And, and to be honest, they're, they're pretty much right. Julia's much more capable than I am at comforting and nurturing and taking care of them. They know the solution to every problem is one person, mommy. Well, this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to tell us the solution to every problem in your life comes down to one person. Everything bad in your life is solved or will be solved by one person who is the focus of Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm I'm really jazzed up this morning that we have finally gotten to Romans 8. Romans 8, this is the the summit of the whole book of Romans, the pinnacle of the book. It is nothing but unadulterated good news. The biblical scholar Griffith Thomas put it this way of Romans 8. He said, it is undoubtedly the chapter of chapters for the life of the believer. This is as good as it gets, Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans 8, God finally presents to us the solution to every problem in our lives, Solution is found in one person, and that person is the Holy Spirit. That's who the whole chapter is about, the Holy Spirit. You've seen him hardly at all as we have marched through Romans. But now, Romans chapter 8, he is mentioned 17 times in this one chapter. It's all about him, all about the Holy Spirit. So let's meet him. Look with me, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation, For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, Paul starts with this really good news, this stunningly good news. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we need to observe the words carefully here. Therefore, there is now. He's using these summary terms, these transitional terms. What Paul is telling us is that at this moment, as as we move through Romans, Paul is stepping back. 
He is stepping back to survey the whole book of Romans. He is looking at the entire book to finally present to us the grand solution to the overarching problem of Romans. What is that problem? The overarching problem of Romans is condemnation condemnation. That's the the big problem of Romans. It's the Greek word katakrima. It only appears in a couple other places in the entire New Testament, and that's Romans 5. Romans 5 is the only other place. Let me share one of those verses with you. We studied this earlier this semester. Romans 5.18. Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one transgression. You guys remember, that's Adam's sin. Adam's choice to take of the forbidden fruit, when he made that sinful choice, the result was condemnation to all of humanity, to Adam and all of his descendants. Now, now condemnation, that's a legal word. It's courtroom terminology. Condemnation, catacrima, it refers to the sentence that a judge levels on a guilty person. It is the consequence of being found guilty. That's the idea here. Now, what is the consequence of being found to be a sinner? What is the consequence here of Adam's sin? We've studied that throughout the book of Romans. The consequence is death. Now, Paul reminds us of that right there in verse 2. He talks about the law of sin and death. Law there, it means governing principle, the rule of life. There was this principle that sin brings death. That is always true. Whether for a believer or an unbeliever, whether the sin of Adam or our own sin, sin always produces death. That is what condemnation is all about. The sentence of our sin is death in all of its forms. And remember, as we've moved through Romans, we have studied that that death is a big thing in Romans. Death is a huge word. Uh, Death in Romans, it includes relational death as a consequence of sin. That's separation from God and from others. And it includes spiritual death, the innate inability to please God. You cannot love God, know God, please God on your own because you are spiritually dead. And it includes physical death, the gradual decay and eventual expiration of this physical body. And worst of all, it includes eternal death. Eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. That is death. It's a huge thing in the Bible. Death in all of its forms, in all of its manifestations, is the condemnation, the sentence of sin. That is the problem of the book of Romans, that all of humanity is born under condemnation because of Adam's choice, because of his sin. We are all born into the sentence of death. Really bad news. Unfortunately, according to the beginning of verse 3, there's nothing we can do about it. Look again at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. If you want to escape condemnation, if you want to overcome sin and erase condemnation, the best that you could do would be to obey God's law, the Mosaic law revealed in the Old Testament. The best set of rules of commands that you'll find anywhere in human history, the best you could do to please God would be to obey that law. But there's a problem. Romans 7, we've looked at for the last two weeks. Every time we try to obey the law, we are betrayed by our flesh, by sin living in us. That's true of the unbeliever. It's true of the believer too. When we try to obey the law in our own strength, we do not get righteousness. We only get sin. We only get guilt and death. That's the only thing the law can produce in us is guilt and death. Really bad news. 
all of humanity is under the condemnation of sin, which is death in all of its forms. And there is nothing that humanity can do to escape that. Fortunately, God has not left us on our own. Fortunately, God can do something. God has done something. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God has solved the problem of condemnation. God has stepped into human history and brought about the solution to the overarching problem of Romans. And Paul tells us in particular, there's two things that God has done in this solution. Two things that he is doing in us. First, set us free. God has set us free from the inescapable law of sin which produces death. That spiral of sin and death that own the human race, God has set us free from that. He's redeemed us, released us from that. Second, verse three, God has condemned sin in the flesh. He's taken the condemnation that was on us and he's placed it on sin. He has judged sin and defeated it. What Paul is talking about here is is God has won the climactic victory against sin. He has defeated this otherwise inescapable law of sin bringing death that humanity was trapped in. He has defeated it. And Paul tells us he has defeated it through his spirit. Through his spirit. He tells us, look again at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life, the law, again, it's principle, the governing principle, the rule of life of the Holy Spirit who produces life. It is the spirit who produces life in us, who undoes the effects of sin, which was death. Sin produces death. The spirit produces life. They're opposite of one another. The spirit brings life where sin had only brought death. So the spirit is God's agent in bringing about this this salvation, this solution. And the spirit does his work in Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that this ministry of the Spirit is possible. The Spirit's work in you, bringing life to you, was made possible by Jesus Christ. Look again at the second half of verse 3. God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now pause there for a second. Paul is not saying that Jesus sinned. Paul is saying that when Jesus was incarnated as a human being, he was just like you in bodily flesh. He came in cursed flesh. That's why his body grew weak. It decayed. It was subject to the same cravings that your body is subject to. But Jesus, unlike us, never gave in. Jesus mastered his flesh. He made his broken flesh a tool for righteousness. He used his flesh, Paul tells us, concerning sin, or the idea there is as an offering for sin. In his cursed flesh, Jesus presented himself to God as a sacrifice for us. Now, we studied that at length in chapter 3. That's what the cross is all about, that, that grand word in Romans 3, propitiation. Jesus took in his body, in himself, all of our sins and suffered the penalty of sin in our place. He took the wrath that we deserved and satisfied it for us. That's what the cross is all about, propitiation. Jesus did that for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Even though we are sinners who deserve the eternal wrath, punishment of God, God sent his own son, Jesus, who was perfect, who was sinless, to take our sins upon his shoulders and to take the punishment we deserved. He died in our place and then rose from the dead conquering sin and death on our behalf. And now the benefits of his sacrifice are available to all who believe, who all who simply accept it in faith. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, then his victory belongs to you. It is yours. Sin is defeated for you. 
You have life through the Spirit if you believe. What Paul is telling us is that this overarching problem of Romans, condemnation, death in all of its forms, it has been defeated by God through the power of the Spirit and the life of his Son. That's the good news of the book of Romans. God has won the day. He has defeated sin. And now Paul tells us, he spends the bulk of the passage telling us that God is in the process of applying that solution, that victory to our lives. That's that's what we call salvation. Salvation, this package of, of blessings from God that the Bible calls salvation, it is God's application of the victory that his son and his spirit has won. It's his application of that victory to your life. And God has applied it in the past, he's applying it in the present, and he will apply it in the future. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Salvation biblically is past, it is present, and it is future. For you, it is all three senses, past, present, and future. Paul wants you to understand all three of those, past, present, and future, come to you through one person, through the Holy Spirit. He is the agent of God bringing about salvation, past, present, and future in your life, undoing the effects of condemnation, setting you free finally from sin which produces death. That's the bulk of what Paul's going to look at this morning. That's what we're going to look at. How the Spirit is saving us in the past, in the present, and in the future. Let's start in the past. The Spirit saves in the past by regenerating all who believe. At a moment in time, at the moment you believe, the Spirit regenerates you. Let's look at that. Look with me starting in verse 8. Paul says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Paul is here contrasting two different types of people, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? What's going on with that preposition in? Uh, Here's Paul's point. In, this preposition in, it denotes status or position. Uh, It denotes where you live, what is true about you. Your identity is determined by whatever follows the word in. So, for those who are in the flesh, that means that their identity before God is flesh, is fallen, is sinful. Their identity is wrapped up in the fallenness of humanity. They live in the realm of the flesh. That's their status, their position. What Paul's talking about is all unbelievers. This is just a new way, a different way of describing unbelievers. Everyone who has not yet accepted the gospel, they are still in the flesh. Their identity is determined by the sinful flesh. In contrast, we are in the spirit. That means that our identity is determined by God's spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Christ, he dwells in us. He determines our status before God. When God looks at us, he no longer sees a person in the flesh. He now sees a person in the Spirit. That is our basic identity before God. That is what is now true of us. In other words, I think what Paul is doing in these verses is he's taking us back and reviewing what he covered in chapter 3 and in chapter 5, but he's using different language. He's using different language, new language to describe the instantaneous change that happened to you the moment that you believe the gospel. Let's review that. The moment that you believe the gospel, in chapter 3, Paul told us, and that moment, what happened for you was justification. 
God declared you permanently righteous in his sight. It's the gavel falling on the judge's bench. You are in the right in the eyes of the court. That's justification. He also used the term redemption. That means to be set free from the penalty of sin. God instantaneously sets you free from the penalty of sin. That's how Paul described that change that happened at belief in chapter three. In chapter five, he used different words. He talked about peace and reconciliation, synonymous ideas there. Uh, Remember that the biblical conception of peace is not just cessation of hostilities. It is to enter into the family and favor of God. Peace means that at the moment that you believed, you were transferred out of the people that were God's enemies into the people who are God's family. You came into God's family and his favor. Paul's talking about the same idea in chapter eight, but now with the language in the spirit and the Spirit dwells in you. In the Spirit, the moment that you believed, you were placed in the Spirit. That is now where you live. At the same time, the Spirit was placed inside of you. That's the really cool thing here. You are in the Spirit because the Spirit is in you, literally. I think that takes us back to what we covered last week. Remember, I gave you a diagram last week that sought to answer the question, what am I? As a human being, what am I? And what we found is that uh, as human beings, we're we're one unified person consisting of both a a material self, our flesh and bones, and an immaterial self, our, our spirit, our mind, our heart, joined inseparably together. But the bad news, every aspect of me is broken by sin. My material self and my immaterial self is broken by sin. That's the bad news that we spent all of last week on, really Just awful passage. Did not enjoy preaching that. The good news is this passage. The good news is is that even though this is me, I'm no longer alone. I'm no longer alone. Now I have something going on inside of me. I have God living inside of me. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within me and he interacts with every part of me. Both my material self and my immaterial self are now touched and influenced by the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us he is particularly interacting with the immaterial part of me called the spirit, that part of me that reaches out to God that that used to be dead. Before I believed the gospel, I was spiritually dead. My spirit was dead, which means that I could not know God. I could not love God. I could not hear God. I could not please God. Now, I could know a lot of factual information about God. It's interesting, if you walk into my office right now, you will see rows upon rows of commentaries that I use to prepare my sermons. Uh, Interesting little secret. Lots of those commentaries are written by men and women who are not believers. Not believers. They don't believe the gospel. But for whatever reason, they decided to study the Greek and Hebrew text for their entire academic careers. And they've studied it really hard, a lot better than I have, very smart men and women. They have dedicated themselves to understanding the biblical text in its original context and original language, and I use their stuff because it's good. They have come to really deep, factual understanding of the text. Yet sadly, even though they have all of this factual knowledge, they have no appreciation for it. It has not entered into them. It has not transformed them in any way. It has not grown their love for God. To them, it's just foolishness. It happens to be interesting foolishness to study. It it remains external to them. It's no different than any other subject of academic study because their spirit is dead. They can study God, but they cannot know him, love him, please him, hear him. Good news is for us. The moment that you believed the gospel, the spirit of God entered you and brought life to your spirit. We call that regeneration. He regenerated your spirit. He caused it to be alive once again. 
Now, I am still a sinner. Sin still affects every part of me, but now my spirit is alive. I I can love God now. I can hear God. I can know God. I can please God because my spirit is alive. That's the great news. Now, when I study the word of God, it isn't external to me. It's not just an academic subject. It is life to me. It enters into me and changes me because my spirit is alive. That's what the the Holy Spirit has done in us. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, that was us before belief. We were born dead in sin, our spirit dead and unable to reach out to God. Even in that moment, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has made your spirit alive. Your body is still dead. It is still decaying, as Paul admits in Romans 8. And yet your spirit is alive. You can know and love and please God. That's great news. That transformation happens at the moment of faith. Great, great news. What Paul wants us to understand is that as great a news as that is, it is only the first step in salvation. It is only the first step in the Spirit's transformation and salvation and redemption of you. Because the Spirit isn't just active in your past, He is also active in your present. We get a clue of that. Look back at verse 10. Yet the spirit, our spirit is alive, that is regeneration, because of or for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of righteousness. What Paul is saying is that the reason that God sent his spirit to live inside of you is for the sake of or for the purpose of bringing about righteousness in your life. Leading you to practice righteousness. What Paul is saying is that in the past, the spirit regenerated you in the present. His salvation in the present is empowering righteousness in the life of everyone who will follow him. Empowering righteousness in the life of everyone who will follow him. Look at verse four. Paul says, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Look again at verse 4. The reason that God set you free from sin, that God condemned sin in the flesh was so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This this is so huge. It's so significant. What Paul is telling us is that God sent his son Jesus to earth to die for our sins, not just to get us to heaven. The gospel is not just about getting us to heaven. Now, obviously, getting to heaven is a good thing. I'm really glad that I get to go to heaven when I die. That's a good thing. But what Paul is saying is God is not content to just get you to heaven. That's not enough for him. It's not enough. God wants more. He sent his son to die for your sins, not just so that you could go to heaven, but so that you could fulfill the intent of the law. You could live out true righteousness. This is incredible news, what Paul is telling us. This is incredible. He sent his son to die for you, to enable you to live a life of righteousness. Jesus didn't just die to justify you. He also died to sanctify you. 
to help you to grow in obedience, to help you to begin to live out the righteousness that God has always wanted for your life. God is not interested in just forgiving your sins. That's good news that he forgave them, but that's not enough. He wants you to stop sinning. That's his goal. Let's stop the sin before it ever happens. He provides forgiveness, but he wants us to stop and he's made it possible through his spirit. His spirit has come to live within us so that as we follow his spirit, Paul tells us literally, we are able to fulfill the requirement of the law. And this is incredible what Paul's telling us. He's saying that for 1,500 years of human history, between Moses and Jesus, there was the law, this Mosaic law, the the law of the old covenant, and everything that the law intended, it failed to accomplish. Year after year, the intent of the law to to lead humanity to righteousness, the law failed to do that. Why? Not through any fault of its own, because of us. Because we are sinners by nature, the law was betrayed by us. But now, what the law could never do, lead us to righteousness, God is doing in us through his spirit as we follow. The Holy Spirit is doing what the law always intended. That's why you don't need a law. You don't need to go back to Exodus or Deuteronomy and follow all the things that it tells you. You don't need a law anymore. That was for the old age. You have something better now. You have God in you. God living inside of you, leading you towards true, real righteousness. That's what the Spirit is producing in you. He is leading you towards righteousness. Now, we need to notice in this passage, according to what Paul says, we have a part to play in that process. Sanctification is not passive. God requires something of us. The spirit requires something of us if he is to work within us and empower us. And Paul describes that he says what's required of us is to walk according to the spirit. To walk according to the spirit. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul doing here? In verse five, he just leaves out the word walk. Live according to the spirit. What does that mean? Let's go back to our chart. Paul's contrasting two prepositions here. In, that determined your status. It was about being a believer or an unbeliever, but not according to. That's a different preposition. According to is about lifestyle. Whatever follows according to is the lifestyle you live, the the pattern of behavior you walk after. For those who live according to the flesh, that could be anyone who's not following the Spirit. That could be unbelievers. All unbelievers would fit that description. It would also be any believers who choose not to walk according to the Spirit. They are walking according to the flesh. Walk according to the Spirit, that's believers who are making a mature decision, who are choosing to follow the leading of the Spirit. Okay, so that's what Paul's talking about. Believers who are making this daily choice to follow the leading of the Spirit. But what does that actually look like? How does that work? We we get a clue in Galatians 5. You probably knew I was going to take you there. Galatians 5, the definitive passage on what it means to walk by the Spirit, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He gives us a a synonym here. To walk by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit, to allow the, the desires of the Spirit to guide and direct your life. As believers, we have a choice. We have a choice between two options. We can follow the leading of the Spirit, His desires for our lives, or we can follow the leadings of the flesh, the natural sinful desires that just come unbidden out of you. You can follow that. You can choose between those two options, but Paul tells you in Galatians 5 what you will get for each choice. 
if you choose to live by the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, on and on. He goes on for three verses, laying out this whole host of sins. If you choose to follow the leading of your flesh, the natural desires that come unbidden from you, the result will be a host of sin in your life. Tons of sin. If, on the other hand, you choose to follow the leading of the Spirit, then... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, then the Holy Spirit comes upon you and produces in and through you his fruit. And I love how Paul describes it as fruit. You're not producing these things. You're not making love. You're not making peace because you can't. You're a sinner. It is not in your nature to do that which is right. So the spirit does it for you. The spirit produces his fruit through. He produces righteousness in and through your life as you follow his leading. Here's how I like to illustrate it. I I think what Paul has in mind in Romans 8 and Galatians 5 is easy to understand. If you think about flying to Chicago, imagine I told you right now, I want you to fly to Chicago. Now, one option is you could walk outside right now And you could start flapping your arms. You you could start trying with all of your effort, with all of your energy, with all of your strength to fly to Chicago. Sad news, you're never going to get there. Because it is not in your nature to fly. It is not in your nature to overcome gravity. You are subject to gravity. It will always win. You're never going to get there. Just like you will never get to righteousness. You will never produce righteousness because it is not in your nature to do so. But there's good news. You have a second option. You can get in a car, drive to Easterwood Airport, and get on a plane. Because it is in the nature of a plane to fly. A plane has the ability to overcome the law of gravity and fly you to Chicago. If you are in the plane, then you can do what is supernatural to you. You can fly. You can fly so long as you are in the plane. Now, at any moment on your journey to Chicago, if you step off the plane, you will plummet to your death because you are still subject to gravity. You still can't do it. But so long as you are in the plane, the plane carries you and allows you to do that which is supernatural to you. So it is with righteousness. You cannot do righteousness on your own. It is foreign to you. It is not within your nature. But if you are in the spirit, if you walk in the spirit, if you allow the spirit to lead and direct your life, then the spirit will allow you to do what is supernatural, what is against your nature. He will produce through you righteousness, real, true obedience to God. He will do that in and through you as you rely upon him. Now you have to continue to rely upon him. If at any point you take the reins of your life back, then you will plummet. You'll fall back into sin because that's all you can do. But as long as you rely upon him and walk in his power, you can fly. Okay, now, that's great news, that we can walk according to the spirit and fulfill the intent of the law, live out true, real righteousness. What does that actually look like? It's a really spiritual, kind of churchy lingo there. Walk according to the spirit. It sounds ethereal. What, what does that actually look like in life? How do I live that out? Well, Paul tells us, Paul gets really practical in the next part of Romans 8. He tells us that to walk according to the Spirit means to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's how you actually do it. Paul's moving to application here. How you walk according to the Spirit is you set your mind on the things of the Spirit rather than the things of the flesh. And by setting your mind, or in the next verse, he uses the the noun mindset. What Paul means here by, by mindset or setting our mind, mindset is the collection of truths, 
of values, of desires that you dedicate your thoughts to. It's the truths and values that you dedicate your conscious train of thought to, that you set your mind upon, that you focus your attention to. And Paul tells us we we have two options. We can set our minds on the things of the spirit. That means the truths and values revealed by the spirit in God's word. When you focus on the things that God has revealed in his word as true, when you let your mind be consumed by the truths and values of God's word, the result is life and peace. In other words, a life of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of true abiding peace. Paul's talking about quality of life here. When you focus your mind on the things of the, of the spirit, you experience God's peace in your life. God's peace comes upon you. But there's another option. You can choose, rather than focusing your mind, setting your train of thought to the things that are true and valuable as revealed by God, you can set your mind on the things of the flesh. That means to set your mind on the, on the values and, and truths as revealed by the fallen flesh, as revealed by the world. The things that this world says are true and valuable. You can fix your mind on those things. Uh, John helps us to understand what this looks like. John in 1 John chapter 2, he describes this mindset of the flesh. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The mindset on the flesh is the mindset on the things that this world values. He calls it the the lust of the flesh. That's the the desires, the cravings that come from my flesh. That's my appetites, my desire for comfort, for pleasure, for sex, all of those things. If I focus my mind on that, that's the mindset of the flesh. Uh, He talks about the lusts of the eyes. That's the, the desire for the goods of this world. If I set my mind to what this world can give me, that's the mindset of the flesh. And the boastful pride of life, that's the desire for fame, for reputation, for significance in this world. When I set my mind to those things, then I am living with a mindset set on the flesh. And interestingly, both John and Paul warn us to do that is to make yourself like an enemy of God. To set your mind on the things of the flesh, on the things of the world, is hostility towards God. It is enmity towards God, because that's not how God thinks. That's how God's enemies think. When we make that choice, when we choose to set our minds on the values and truths that this world reveals, Paul tells us, John tells us the same thing, the result is death. The result is death, not eternal death, but an experience of death, a life devoid of God's peace, a life that is full of shame and regret, insignificance and anxiety. That's what you get, a life of death when you set your minds on the things of the flesh. Now, I want to get practical for a minute. What what does this actually look like? What does this actually look like? Because the reality is we live in the real world. Let's let's be honest with each other. We, We spend most of our waking hours fixated on worldly things. You got to. You got to go to work. You got to raise a family. Got to buy groceries, got to pay your bills, got to do the things that people do in this world. So what does it mean to do all of these worldly things out of a mindset on the spirit rather than a mindset on the flesh? I I don't have much time, so I'm just going to give you one illustration. One illustration, money. Money. Money makes the world go round. We all need it. We all use it. Good news biblically is that money is neither good nor bad. Money is value neutral. Value neutral. But there are two different ways to approach money, two different attitudes, mindsets with which a believer can approach his money. There's the mindset of the spirit. 
The mindset of the spirit sees money as a gift from God and constantly thanks God for whatever money you have. The mindset of the spirit looks at money like God looks at money. What is God's basic nature? God's basic nature is a giver. He's not a taker, he's a giver. And so when the mindset of the spirit looks at money, it says, how can I give? How can I use this money like God uses his things to bless people, to enrich people? The the mindset of the spirit says, how can I use this money as a tool, as a gift to take care of of my needs, uh, of the needs of my family now and in the future? How, How can I use this money as a tool to bless those without, those who are in need, those who are desperate and poor? How can I use this money to build God's kingdom, to to do something that will last for eternity? How can I use it in the church and in missions? How can I use it as a tool of eternal investment? That's how God sees money. That's the mindset of the spirit as it approaches money. Always giving, always looking for opportunities. Money just as a tool with which to bless and to glorify God. But then there's the mindset of the flesh. The mindset of the flesh looks at money and says, this is mine, I earned it. I can do with it whatever I want. The mindset on the flesh may decide, you know what, I'm going to spend it. But my motivations, my reason behind spending that money is is to spend it on my pleasure or, or to spend it to make myself look good to other people. That's why I spend my money. Or the mindset on the flesh may decide not to spend it, to save it. To to hoard it, in fact, to hoard it because you view money as the essence of security for you. So you hold on to it with tight fists. The mindset of the flesh is taking. It's all about taking, all about accumulating more. So money is this thing that I desire because it meets my pleasures and it builds my security. All of us have to interact with money. Money is not evil. It's all about your attitude towards it. Do you see it as God does, as a gift to be given? Or do you see it as the world does, as something to be hoarded and spent on self? That's what it comes down to, this mindset idea. Now, how do we actually fix our minds on the things of the Spirit? How do we practice this? Paul tells us in Colossians 3. I want to share this with you real quick. Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So same command. Set your mind on the things that are God's, the things of God's Spirit. How do you do that? How do you set your conscious train of thought on the things that God values? Well, Paul gives you three specific applications here. First, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. First thing you need to do if you want to practice a mindset on the spirit is you need to saturate your mind with the word of God. The word of God is the repository of truths and values of the spirit. You got to know it. You got to read it. You got to memorize it and study it. You need to spend time in the word because as you fill your mind with the word, it leads your thoughts to the thoughts of the spirit. It helps you to appraise truth and to value things as God does. You gotta saturate your mind with the word. That's the first specific thing to do. Second specific thing to do. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So first, saturate your minds with truth. Second, surround yourself with godly community. Surround yourself with godly community. You need to draw together with other believers whom you can encourage to see things as God sees things. You need other believers who can challenge you to see things as God does and not as the world does. After college, I moved up to D.C., and for the longest time in D.C., I didn't have that godly community, and I was floundering. 
I was drowning in the mindset of the world. I was surrounded by German cars everywhere. Everyone had a Porsche. And all I could think about was the fact that I had a Nissan. And, and I worked with people who, who were focused completely on their career. It was all about climbing the career ladder. That was all that mattered. That was the mindset I was surrounded by. And I found myself struggling spiritually until I found two guys, Craig and Min, who I moved in with. Christian guys who we encouraged one another to live in accordance to what truly matters, to live for eternity, to live for the Lord. That made all the difference. Surrounding myself with other believers who shared this mindset on the spirit. So saturate your mind with truth, surround yourself with godly community. And third application Paul has for us, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Giving thanks this little practice, this little discipline of giving thanks at all times to the Lord. When you give thanks for what God has provided you on a regular basis, I'm not just talking about before you go to bed at night, but just on a regular basis throughout today, thanking God for what he has done, that shields you, that protects you from the lies of this world because the world is always screaming to you more. You must have more. But when you practice thankfulness, you remind yourself, no, I don't. I have everything. Why do I need anything more? God has already richly blessed me. As you practice thankfulness, it helps you to set your mind on that which is true, that which is truly valuable. When I was up in D.C., I had to, after I moved in with Min and Craig, I had to institute a little policy in my life when I'm driving down the road and I see a Porsche, it is time to look forward and thank God for my Nissan. And I began really to practice that. It was just a discipline. It seemed cheesy, but it worked. It really worked. Every time I saw a Porsche, I looked forward and I thank God for the life he's given me. I thank God for the opportunities he's given me to support those who are really in need. I had friends who were going into missions. I got to give money to them. They were making a real difference. They would last for eternity far after that Porsche was rusted and nothing. Got to practice thankfulness. So as you saturate your mind with scripture, as you surround yourself with godly community, and as you practice thankfulness on a regular basis throughout your day, you set your mind on the things of the spirit. That sets your mind. It focuses your attention on that which God views to be true and valuable. So the spirit has saved us in the past. He has regenerated our spirit and he is saving us in the present. He is producing in our lives true, real, lasting righteousness as we set our minds on the things that he values. Only have a moment, so I'll just end with this. Fortunately, Spirit's not done with us yet. Salvation is past, it is present. It is also future because I still have a body. I still have a body that is decaying and that will die. My body's gonna die unless Jesus comes back first. Fortunately, the Spirit's not done with me yet. He has a solution even for this, a solution we call resurrection. Look with me in verse 11. Last verse of the passage Paul says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's talking about this day coming in the future. This day in the future, whether it's when Christ returns or we die and he returns, we will stand before God and the spirit will resurrect us. He will bring back to life this decaying dead body. Here's what it looks like. So here's where we left it. The spirit has regenerated us. This is good, but this is not yet great because my body is still decaying and dying, but that will come to an end. The spirit will bring about this final act called resurrection when he removes the last vestiges of sin in me. 
The last effects of condemnation are erased. It is all gone, sin and death completely gone forever as the spirit resurrects my body to glory so that I am like Jesus in spirit and in body. I am perfected. That is the hope we have. That is the great hope we have. God is not going to allow you to remain under condemnation in any way. Again, God is not content to just get you to heaven. He's producing righteousness in your life now. In the future, he will resurrect you and perfect you so that you are everything he meant you to be. Glorious. His image bearer, perfected in every way. That's what he's doing in you. In the past, the present, and the future through his spirit. His spirit, the one applying salvation to your life in every way. I want us to end by going to the Lord and praying for his help to fix our minds on the things of the spirit, praying for his help to live with hope, hope that is focused on what his spirit is doing in us now and will do on that day when he resurrects us to glory. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much that you are not willing to leave us under the sentence of condemnation. Lord, that is what we deserved. We are sinners just like Adam was. We deserve your wrath. We deserve the misery that our sin has produced. And yet in love and grace, you have stepped into human history through your son and through your spirit to set us free. Thank you, God. And thank you that you don't just set us free from part of condemnation. It's not just about getting to heaven. You are undoing all the effects of sin. Thank you, Father, for all of us who are here. Lord, we confess if we are believers, we know that the Spirit lives within us. As a result, Lord, we confess to you, sin is never unavoidable again. At any moment, we can obey, Lord. If we will just follow your Spirit, we pray for your help. Please, Father, convict us of where our, our mindset, our worldview is, is like that of the world, like that of the flesh. Convict us of where we are appraising truth or valuing things as the world does. Help us to see truth and value as you do. Help us to interact with this world with a mindset on the spirit, on the things of the spirit, on the things that you love. I pray, Father, help us to be people who live with hope. Live with hope that you are not going to leave us in the effects of sin, but you will one day resurrect us to perfection and glory. Let that be the hope and the cry of our souls. I pray, Father, that through your spirit, you would make us to be people who are like your son, that we would be like him in every way, righteous in our lives, not through our power, but through the strength of your spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness and grace given us in your son and your spirit. In the name of your son, we pray, amen. God bless you guys.